I filmed it all. Yeah, the moment when the car bomb approaches, I I couldn't hear it. They were all shouting car bomb, car bomb. And I wasn't experienced. The other guys went straight on the ground. We were in the garden. And and I kind of went on the ground, but obviously my first thought was, okay, let me film it, what's going to happen. So I went on the ground, I hid my face behind the camera. Then when the blast happened, so all this blast filled my frame and that was, I think, the closest BBC managed to film the explosion ever. And I managed to survive, you know, luckily. The guys were outside of this garden, they didn't. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Carpe Diem. I'm your host, Luca Rocchini. Today I'm going to have a chat with Marek Polaseski. Marek is a London-based Polish lighting cameraman and cinematographer currently working for the BBC World Service in the world zones around the world. Marek studied anthropology of culture while in Poland, worked for national TV stations and founded his own film production company. Later, he moved to London, where he worked on films, documentaries, TV, and promotional videos. We're going to have a chat about his studies and work in Poland, his choice to move to London, and his experiences working in World Zones. Hi, Marek. Thanks Hello, for being with us. Long time. How are you? Very good, mate. Very good. Hello, Luca. It's been it's been well a, a few, a couple of years, I'm sure, that we've seen each other last time, and it's not because of Corona, but it's also because of other, I think, other things we got busy during life. Yeah, so it's, it's it's London, is it? <laughs> exactly. That, that it's London, and it's also you you travel quite often, and I travel as well. So. Yeah. You, you definitely travel more than me. <laughs> I used to. I used to. It has changed for some reason. For uh, yeah, for at least half of a year. But I'm still trying to come back to it. Yes. All right, man. Um, let, let's start from your time in Poland. Uh, what was the reason to study anthropology of culture, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, it's a very good question. It's a question I keep asking myself from time to time, why I've chosen it. I think the reason was, uh, I think there were two reasons. First of all, I <clears throat> I went to the pretty, pretty good or like middle class school in my in my hometown, uh, which I didn't enjoy that much. The thing was that, you know, you would go there uh, you would go there if you really wanted to make career as a doctor or as a lawyer, which is all fantastic. This is actually what my parents do themselves. So, so that was also the school where my father used to go when he was younger. So it was kind of continuation of my tradition. And I met there, and and I met there fantastic people. But I just knew that I just need to do something different. And I was always a bit. A bit outsider, I would say, quite often. I started to get into into very ethnic topics, passions, music quite early. Uh, the second, like the second reason probably I've chosen anthropology, and it's probably even more important, was 
I believe 1975 or 1975. Uh, they traveled through they uh, traveled through uh, through Algeria uh, Alger Chad and basically okay let me say it again they basically traveled through Algeria N uh, Mali Niger I think they also managed to go to Burkina Faso and they finished in Cameroon it took it took them uh, half of a year the whole trip where the three months were basically on the ship coming back from Cameroon to Europe. But the three months uh, they spent basically driving a big Polish lorry and gathering a lot of artifacts, doing, doing, doing the research and basically getting in, in touch with communities where then uh, in Polish, which was deep in communism, it wasn't that popular for people here to be even open or to actually know what's going on in in the African continent, not even mentioning particular countries in West Africa. And my father went there as a doctor. He was basically helping helping the expedition. But 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 he was a kind of keen photographer. He got a lot of black and white uh, pictures. He, and he brought home a lot of a lot of masks, a lot of uh, um, a lot of sculptures, uh, batiks, and all sorts of things which he displayed at our home. So whenever I was playing there as a kid, from the very very young age, uh, it was always in the background. I used to use those masks as a part of my uh, of my. Uh, toys, you know, accessories and stuff like that. So probably subconsciously it's been with me from very, very early age. And then, uh, yeah, that's why I just knew that, that there's something in those things, in those masks, in those pictures uh, that I need to come back. Um, also, there was this thing he used to, he converted quite a lot of pictures, if not almost all of them, into how do you call them the slides yeah yeah you basically need to so you convert them into you convert i mean you keep them on celluloid but you convert them in a way that you can display them in a dark room and my brother and my mom we yeah we would ask him every couple of months you know that when is gonna be the time that you're gonna you know you're gonna keep the dark room and you're gonna show us the real Africa and stuff like that. You know, like the stuff which now obviously uh, sounds very incorrect, but those times in 1980s in Poland was totally different. So, so I cherish those those moments. I wanted to know every background. I, I mean, I I wanted to know background of every picture and yeah, that definitely stayed deep in me. And yeah, I just knew that if I wanna if I wanna discover anything else apart from being a lawyer or a doctor, which I didn't really want to be that much, then yeah, 
that's why I went there. My colleagues were always asking why that, you know, why would you go to this place? And and I knew it's not gonna bring me money because I think those days in Poland, you could like the highest ambition would be to work in the museum. So yeah, that wasn't really my thing, but, but I knew that the amount of knowledge and the different perspectives, different points of view, in different parts of the world, this is what I definitely wanted to explore more. So what did you learn from your studies? Like, what did you like? The way how you study in anthropology in Poland is a bit different, because obviously when you look in different backgrounds of countries all over the world, everyone would define anthropology in a different way. But basically, to me, it was learning about the points of view of different people. So in Poland, it was a bit different because we were focused quite a lot on 19th century Polish countryside and stuff like that. Like we were more into those more pagan or religion point of view, you know, because that's the big point of uh, that's the big part of anthropology. That's a massive part of culture of uh, every country. So th there was a lot of that, but we I especially enjoy this those lectures about you know African continent or Southern American continents. These were the two the most important for me. But what I what I've really learned or, or what I hope I've learned is that you you switch off your Eurocentric point of view or whenever you judge someone because after all we you know we keep judging all the time. It's the part of human nature. But just to forget where you're coming from, forget how lucky in my case, how lucky I am being born in a peaceful country, having both parents, having fantastic childhood. Forget about that and try to imagine how how it would be to be born in this in a different place. And whenever I encounter anyone, even today, even in the same culture, even in the same city, you know, it's very easy to judge and call someone different way or just or try to behave in a way that it just if you throw all of it out of the window and just put yourself in this position and and just ask yourself how would you behave who would you be you know and then i think this is the most precious things i learned just to try not to judge from my point of view and trying to try to look at the situation at the problem or whatever it is from with someone else's eyes obviously it, it's just a wish yeah it's, it's, it's actually something similar i have and probably something that i would like to study and i see there is a connection with uh, filmmaking or photography so understanding cultures it kind of helps how you represent cultures through your eyes so i'm the same like i always thought uh always thinking you know um, I always remember remind people how lucky we are kind of like to, to be growing and uh, growing up in in, in Western uh, culture so not to forget you know it's much much easier for us yes and no I would say because yeah mm. we are very lucky when we look at ourselves that we've basically got pretty much everything what we need but I think we, yeah, we kind of, I think we're lacking, we're lacking a bit of this humble point of view, you know, there's yeah. like appreciation for everyone else. 
Because yeah, we are. Li I mean, it. This is very, very difficult topic and long topic. But basically, yeah, I do agree. We are very lucky to have access to knowledge so easily, to have access to technology, to be uh, basically whatever we want to do, we can do. No, there is nothing, not much which stops us. And um, yeah, and I, yeah, I definitely agree. I don't know what luck is. No. <laughs> in the end if if like luck is yeah the access to the technology access to in our in both um, of us uh, we are white skin so you know having white skin in many parts of the world is a different uh, you know it gives you different access to different things or it stops you from getting somewhere but it's yeah there's a whole of different topic which is obviously a big part of my work life and my private life as well but I just think, yeah, anthropology should definitely be a part of, I think everyone should go through at least a few months, if not yeah. years of it, because what it really does, it just broadens your horizons. It opens your mind. Uh, but I, it's not enough, I think, because I still got a lot of friends who I, who I studied with and who, you know, knowing all of that, studying all of it also traveling with me to some you know northern african countries i think that was the last trip i i've done to get or yeah one was in sudan one was in mali and then um knowing all of that stuff i can still see that there are people who like totally forget about those other people and they would actually even focus more on their core values on patriotism nationalism and stuff like that so I think, yeah, even having knowledge, it doesn't really make you that open sometimes, I've noticed. But that's my personal observation. Yeah, the same like, I, you know, I travel a lot back in the day. You know, I still travel a bit for work, but, you know, I when I went across South America for six months, uh, that was the kind of thing oh, that, you yeah, know, I was... That I was interested, you know, culture and get it to adapt to a culture. So adapt your character, and uh, it's kind of similar the way you have to adapt in UK, and, and I had to adapt in Ireland. It's a bit different, but you know, try to learn the language, try to learn the slang, uh, put an effort. I, I really enjoyed that, so it's no real effort for me. But try to make mm. local friends. Yeah, one thing I I'd learned, like I remember when I was on the, my trip in South America and when I was in Brazil, uh, with, with a friend of mine, with a Brazilian friend of mine, we went all together to the carnival and, you know, I was the guy basically buying drinks for everybody because it was kind of cheap for me and all loved me. And then, you know, after the carnival, it was one of the guys was like, you know, there should be a way to give password that's a uh, passport that should be the way you know because you were the one who were enjoying most you know and you know you were really yeah, like i was like dancing you know kind of samba all the time whatever type of samba i used to love dancing as well so it's part of the culture you know to integrate and it's definitely important to try to put yourself on somebody else kind of um costumes so and and once you have that you know it it just it's just easier in in the future to stop and think actually you know it might say this way not because uh but because his background you know that's the way it's come from so we're not in the same kind of patch 
Yeah, basically, I think that that. All, but you've mentioned also another good point when you when you when you earn in pounds in UK, your view in the of yeah. the world changes as well. Yeah, because I remember when I was still in Poland, you know the that our currency is not or it wasn't that bad, but still going anywhere in Western Europe, going to Italy, for example, going skiing going switzerland france you know every every day would be you would always end up end up counting no every going to the restaurant buying stuff in the supermarkets basically like a student which obviously got its own uh interesting uh, features and you can travel like that why not but but you always you know you are always kind of somewhere else you know you are not in the mainstream and then if you if you work in the country which got a stronger currency obviously you don't need to use it and i don't and i'm not a big fan of doing any like any luxurious things i don't even like to stay in the hotels apart from work because when you work you really need sometimes that good bed and you need to have constant power to power your batteries and stuff like that but when i go for fun yeah i i just i, I just always try to stay a bit low-key a bit of this you know guy from europe who doesn't really know why is he here you know why he went to that you know village why why he went to this kind of party where there is only you know the only white guy there and stuff like that so yeah you can still leave this lower cost stuff but yeah it's quite difficult then to hide you know what passport you've got so it's um that's the other advantage which can be easily disadvantaged as well but then yeah as you say trying to embrace that culture or trying to embrace you know the a different language you know so i always at least try to learn those basic words yeah uh because that will always gonna get you further and it's just gonna make people smile especially especially if you can't say it very easily and it takes you a lot of effort to learn something then then you're just gonna get a big reward and you're always gonna get more sympathy Although there are countries which I gave up, actually the <laughs> I gave up on my last trip, which was in Armenia. There's basically I just can't say thank you or even <laughs> hello in Armenian, mainly because it's just too long. It's like too um, long, and the language like, got nothing to like. I speak a few a few languages on, in some way or another, but there was nothing I could connect with. No. And also because it was work trip, I didn't really have time and energy to always to study that. But I could speak Russian, and you can always speak Russian and in Armenia a bit. But it's yeah. But anyway, just trying, you know, making an effort. Don't go somewhere as you know as very privileged white person from Europe who just want to have amazing time off and put everything on Instagram. No try to i mean like my way is just basically forget about those phones forget about instagram you know i just don't have even energy and time and tr like trying to post anything but yeah and then just if you put this phone away maybe even camera you know and just speak to people you know there were so many so many instances when i 
when I could take a picture, when I could just do it in a different way. But I just knew that if I don't take my camera out of my bag or if I don't don't make an effort to like to take a picture of the situation or of this person, then it's going to stay in me. Yeah. So I basically so I remember a lot of pictures I haven't taken no, for that reason, because I wanted to have it all constant stream of the feeling of the vibe of this place or or this person talking to me. And I knew the moment I would take this camera or phone, I would kill it. Yeah. yeah. So I prefer to to keep it, try to remember it. And this is, you know, this is how it stays in me. Yeah, that, that's some moment is just better to let it flow. And and agree on the point about learning languages, you know, that's, that was easier for me, like, you know, being Italian and as a Latin language in South America. I was yeah. kind of fluent in Spanish and then yeah. I learned you guys Portuguese. Got it very easy, much easier than <laughs> Polish dude well, you, trying you, to get anything. You get easy now, you know, <laughs> traveling and east, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to, to say yeah, anything yeah, really, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I yeah. traveled to, to Russia as well, uh, okay. but, you know, we were speaking in English there, so yeah, yeah. it's, you know, would take me, it's just easier for my roots, you know, some, some some like Spanish for me was easier to learn than uh, and to understand like uh, some dialects in Italy. So it's oh, that also, yeah. So that's interesting. You know, first time I went to Barcelona, put the when I was a teenager, put the TV uh, the TV news on, and I was fully understand what what it was saying. You know, <laughs> when, I, when I went to Naples, nothing, you know, zero, you know. So. It's it's, I it's easy for us. Which part of Italy are you from? Florence. Florence, okay. yeah, yeah. I've been to Florence. We don't don't really have a dialect, so it's we're not as used to actually speak kind of two different languages. But all right, let's move on now. Um, and afterwards, you kind of got into filmmaking. So, what what sparked your interest, and what was the inspiration and your first experiences? Yeah, that was actually before I studied anthropology of culture. Basically, yeah, part of being of my lucky childhood was that my mom really tried to find what passions her sons have. Yeah, so both my brother and me, we were put for different tests, you know, going to like a drama class piano class you know they still try to teach us piano i mean they've been forcing me to play i think for four or five years i've never picked it up i know the basic notes but it's just embarrassing i can't do pretty much anything i couldn't until i was like 18 19 i couldn't even listen to anything being played on piano and now obviously i i regret it so much that i don't play no but that was just the lesson for my kids, or if you get kids, you know, just maybe it's not the best idea to force because it's just it's it just going to backfire and then it's going to backfire again because now I can't do it. But yeah, so my mom was taking us for, for different classes or hobbies, passions or stuff. And then and one of it was she took me to our uh, cultural center in my in my city of Poznań in Poland. And there was like a film club. So I just like, okay, so she left me there for the whole day and I was talking, I, I think I was then around 12 or 13 maybe. Oh, wow. And I, and I kind of picked it up quite, quite easy. You know, that was the time of 
the VHS cameras and you had the VHSC, Hi8. If anyone knows what I'm talking about now, but it's it was more about the just being with a group of people who just tries to come up with a story and film it because then we would share different, you know, share different jobs. You know, we could be a sound engineer, we could be a cameraman, director, stuff like that. So it was a a fantastic fun, I think, if you're 12 or 13 and you just kind of not that socially awkward, which is pretty interesting because I was socially awkward because I've always, you know, since I remember I used to suffer from stutter, which is much, much better now. But when I was a kid, it was a really like a thing which would stop me from uh, contact from contacting to people, you know, and just basically expressing my opinion and so on. And I think maybe there was something in it because, you know, you could just you could write the story and you could film it. You didn't need to use your language. You know, you didn't need to speak. So I think there was something in it. I just found that's the way I could just express myself somehow. I tried painting, but no, my painting skills weren't really good. And then, uh, yeah, that was it. On the note of that, those skills, uh, that was part of my other study, the cultural study in Mali. We were, although Mali doesn't really, uh, it's it's not that important here, but there is apparently, I mean, I'm not an expert in it, but there is apparently that thing, if you are between like 12, 14, that's the moment when you when you start to draw or when you start, basically, until you are 11 or 12, apparently when someone tells you you need to draw a house, you're just basically just going to draw a house from your, from the way how you picture yourself a house, yeah? So the house is in, in your head somewhere and you don't even try to copy any reality. And that's why you scatter things all over your sheet of paper. It doesn't matter. The scale doesn't matter. Things don't matter, no? And this is where you actually, where you can get pretty creative. And then apparently between 12, 14 years of age, is this moment when someone asks you to draw the same house. You're basically actually trying to be better and you try to copy it. And you try to look at the house you can see behind the window and you try to copy it. And obviously... It looks terrible, no? Because you don't know the rules of perspective. You don't know why the things are b- behind each other. It's basically, yeah, one of those things which you could. I mean, if you can draw the thing behind something, that's apparently a big step. And and that's the moment if you're if someone tells you then that oh. You used to draw so beautiful. Look at this. You know how does it look like now? And this is the moment when you kill it, no? And and maybe someone done it when I was younger. Just say, oh, yeah, like like your drawings are kind of okay, but look that you were supposed to draw a table, and your table's got only three legs. No, what kind of table is that? And this is when you this is when you kill all this creativity. No, so I think I think I killed it, or someone killed it. But then I found it again in films, and. Uh, yeah, the, we used to we used to form a film club and and we used to go to the film festivals. It was like you know the beginning of my travels. I would travel like an hour from my hometown for some film festival in some local local smaller town. And because I was that young, uh, we and my friends also were you know the same age or maybe a bit older. We would get awards, no? Awards just for that that we tried, you know, that 
actually those films were pretty funny they were amazingly simple you know nothing there but that's but people liked it so that kind of got me into it i just knew okay this is something which i can do and it's completely different to what my friends at school do you know so it was like like they started to call me oh Marek, you know you're this director blah 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 obviously it was all fun and then when i went to that school i mentioned in the beginning uh you know i just thought okay i just need to be now serious you know like this whole filmmaking going you know filming uh, one of my first films was going to the zoo and film film monkeys and film some you know some some other unusual animals for polish uh, culture and just and we would put this put the human voices in them you know nothing really amazing but when it's done by 11 or 12 years old kids it's actually pretty funny so i just thought okay come on but this is not the stuff i should be doing no? so so then i kind of i wouldn't say wasted but i for this four years of my high school i basically went totally away from it no i haven't filmed a thing i don't think i was even taking any pictures i basically put it all away no and then when I went to study anthropology, uh, I think it occurred to me even in the first year, you know, this is just like, okay, what am I going to do after this anthropology? I don't want to really go to the museum. What about actually traveling and taking pictures or filming and using that knowledge? Yeah. So that was the moment. Oh, aha, maybe it's not that silly, you know? And I went to the same place. They used to then offer much, you know, much, much more mature courses. You know, I think I took two or three years old. Eh, sorry, two, two or three years long, uh, long, yeah, uh, course. And uh, yeah, that was it. I started to actually. Then I knew I just want to be a camera person or a cameraman. Yeah. And I just knew that I want to focus on filming those stories. And I've done like a short degree there. It was actually fantastic because the people who were our teachers, I got on pretty well with them. They knew exactly what I want to do. I wasn't worse <laughs> in the class. So they would always invite me to work a bit with them, for them. So I had a very easy and very early access to the to the I wouldn't say filmmaking world because there was more focus on on TV but more and more towards TV world and then I also there's something which which is called the which is called the visual anthropology and that's basically anthropology where you focus on filming but then there's a totally different area of affecting your study no basically if you go somewhere without the camera and let's say you study certain community uh let's say somewhere in the amazon forest and then you go there and you want to film it uh, i mean and you want to gather the information without the camera then obviously whatever you're going to write down is going to be affected I, I mean that's going to be your subjective point of view no mm. Even the pictures you're gonna take. This is like, like the moment you press the shutter. This is like, this is very subjective, no? And your point of view is very subjective, and everything is subjective. And then they believed somehow that if you've got it with the video camera and you put it somewhere on the tripod, somewhere in the wide shot, then it's not 
subjective, which is obviously not true. But but it would be I would kind of agree it's less, you know, it's less subjective. You know, if you're gonna now let's say document some pretty rare uh occurrence like I don't know you just film the read the passage or some you know something you're just gonna film someone joining another community and getting you know when he becomes like a man like a full full right person to live in that culture you know something which you can't easily document then if you film it in a long version let's say four hours video without any cut then that kind of gives you the better insight yeah it's yeah it's controversial yeah but is is like uh, it was uh, Jean-Luc Godard you know was saying like yeah, yeah filming yeah. is 24 frames a seconds of lies so yeah. it, even even if you have uncut because whatever you do whatever you however you film if you cut you give your subjectivity why you cut there why you didn't show this so if you cut it's subjective yeah, exactly. but even yeah. if you put the camera in a certain angle compared with another angle it's it's still it's still like <laughs> why from yeah. this side why this why but it's always subjective you know you never yeah. you yeah, never get exactly. off of that it's never gonna be you can be like in the university you know when you have to study something you need to have three point of views and then you can add yes. your point of view so giving multi subjectivities you can get a more kind of version of reality is it yeah it's basically that where is the difference now where is the difference between being an observer who doesn't know a thing and being an insider who knows everything no there's like basically you would just need to become this person to be able to tell but the moment you become this person you already forget about the differences which actually that's the very random thing whenever i travel and i go to the country or to the place which is very different to what i've experienced in my life and i'm gonna stay there let's say for two weeks although you never know in the in the media world how, how long you're gonna stay somewhere but basically i know i'm gonna stay there for two weeks and i see amazing things in the first day and i say okay i'm gonna take a picture of it but maybe not now because let me let me understand it let me understand it better and let me come back here tomorrow and take a picture no obviously i will never come back there i will be already interested by something else and i will get used to those things for this one day it's enough for me to get used to them to disregard and not taking picture of them or not taking note of them yeah so that's uh, the, like the first 24 hours somewhere where i am like i try to as long as i've got time and energy i try to take pictures of very random things you know taking notes very random notes which obviously the next day and especially after that week of being there are just so trivial to me it's like come on mate you should have understood this is like that but then you know at least I've got this observation, no? This observation I lose later, no? Because it becomes obvious to me. So I still, you know, when I when I arrived in London, it was 2012, I was then taking quite a lot of pictures on my, like, very, very old smartphone, and I needed then to cycle with, like, a proper... Uh, atlas book no a map so because i didn't have the, uh, the internet in my phone and stuff like that so i was just traveling here by bike and taking very random pictures and now when i look at them 
I was just like, I would never take a picture of it now, but then, now I understand why I, why I wanted to show it, no? why it was so strange for me. And that was, this is the difference. So if, if you tell me now, if you ask me, oh, Marek, tell me about how, is this, how it is living in London, I would just tell you a totally different thing than I would tell you in 2012. No? Yeah, I'm, Because I'm, I'm already insider, no, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm very different actually. When I when I get into a place, I'm bang, take a picture. I just find doom doom. That's the thing. I'm the opposite. And then I stay there maybe later. I might. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. more so instinctive for me. Just the first moment I, you know, and, and when when I do like in in Brazil, like the same. I you know I didn't want to. I want to enjoy the moment. Most of the time, you know, there is not the right time to take off your camera because you break that kind of world. Yes, yes. But uh, <clears throat> I remember having the camera on my shoulder ready, basically, with the right F-stop and, you know, and yes. I was so trained, even while I was dancing, I was seeing something happen somewhere and I was like, oh, that's a great moment. Boom, take it out and pitch, you know, and be yeah, yeah, super yeah. fast with manual focus and everything. And it was the kind of fun training. But is, otherwise, you know, I don't like to kind of break the wall. If I can, as soon as I arrive, you know, I have my interpretation, I take a picture. Yeah, I think these are different things which we do. I mean, different aims we do it for. Because obviously, if I do it for myself, yeah, then I would take those pictures very... I mean, that I still take pictures quite often, I think, but some... But then I think it's the part of the job I'm doing now, you know, being a journalist, you don't, you try to be the least subjective you can be. So, of course, I can see it, I can see this is amazing, but you know, let me go and speak to people, let me understand yeah. it, because, because obviously I can't just, I mean, I don't want to give example. I mean, I don't even know what kind of examples I would get, but it's, Sometimes you can easily offend, you know, yeah, because yeah. something looks so strange to you or you might find it funny or you might find it scary. But then actually it's it's a very normal thing. You just your your very broad, I mean, narrow European point of view just categorize it. No, and you don't even know that you didn't even realize. So before you pass it on, before you upload this image, before you do anything, just you know make this an effort go and ask you know why it was done like that why the, you know and then yeah yeah you need to keep in mind uh, the sensitivity of the other people you're gonna film usually if i can steal it you know i do it uh because <laughs> those those pictures are the best the one i yes, just yes, see yes, straight yes. away are the best yes, otherwise yes. you know if it's uh like i've been in, in a bolivian wedding uh yeah. once and uh and you know i was the basically i became the official photographer and they love it you know <laughs> so, they, yeah, so i got some amazing weird. pictures but the first ones i think like inside the mines i took uh they were they're just the best picture I took. I don't know why, but it kind of happened that way. Yeah, yeah. And no, yeah, I totally understand. Yes. And now, like, let, let's move on. Like, um, about your first experience uh, uh, working on, on TV in Poland. So, can you tell us a bit about that? Um, How did it all start? Yeah. No, yeah, it's, I think it started with those little jobs I was doing during my, you know, during this that course I men, uh, course I mentioned earlier. Mm. But then there was um, 
there was a basically my hometown is quite known for business we are quite close to germany and we've got this whole fair like the international fair area and we've got ex how you call it the fair like the trade fairs no you get it like every or almost every week every two weeks you would have international buyers and people coming and trading and they had this idea of setting up that tv there which was basically focused on business it was even called i think tv business and yeah that's where i started to work first it was it was uh, it sounds very boring because it's, i mean I, i mean it sounds boring to me i'm much more human uh, how we call it humanistic person than and money and graphs and all of that it's not really my thing but it gave me this feeling of actually being a cameraman going somewhere and film something and then we also used to travel a lot i used to drive a lot all over the country you know and so that was great i was learning a lot on the job usually with good effects but i remember now especially from my from the perspective you know i know there were major fuck ups am i allowed to say fuck up on your podcast yeah of course okay <laughs> major fuck ups and then uh but i learned from them and yeah so there was a lot of a lot of a lot of traveling a lot of like very how we call it the run and gun situation so you just need to just get out of the car very quickly film and go back and yeah that was the beginning then uh, i met another friend who was also in the same film club but but we don't really i don't think if we remember being there together when we were that young but basically i met him well this is going to be a long story do you want it <laughs> you can always cut it out make a cut yeah Yeah. <laughs> uh there was the f- there was a moment when John Paul II, now the Pope. Yeah. But also because he was Polish, it was yeah. like the, one of the biggest icons in Poland ever. So when he died, it just like basically the whole the whole life in Poland stopped, no? And everyone was going to the, you know, to the monuments, to the cemeteries, everyone was lighting candles. This is what we do when we when people die. And I remember even like, you know, like something which I can't even think about it now. Basically, there were so many TVs trying to cover it and there were there, like there wasn't enough space. So let's say there would be one sat truck, you know, so for people who don't understand, it's basically the truck, which is the, mo- the which is the responsible one for sending the pictures via satellite and or the other channels. And they would just give those pictures to all of the other tv stations they would just share it they would suddenly all instead of fighting they would work all together you know they would just every cameraman would bring his own tape and he would and he, and and he might have said which tv he's from but he would just give it okay just send it to everyone yeah so there was like there was a good situation so there was just this whole situation that like everyone suddenly loved each other in Poland and we just all have this massive loss because it's not even I mean for people who don't know maybe that much of Polish history it's not just Catholics obviously Catholics is it's very strong in Poland still but it's not only about the 
it's not only about the religion. Basically, Catholic pope for many of Polish people during communism was the only alternative to communism. If you if you didn't want to be a communist, if you if you had any kind of hope, then looking into into Catholicism through John Paul II was just the very common way and also because he was out there in the western world traveling and he could he could he could kind of advocate for us no so for now it would be it would be probably totally different situation but in those times losing him was like losing a bit of this losing a bit of this identity although even you know communist sympathizers they would probably value him a lot but anyway where i was he died and then there was every, everyone would just go there and and just think you know light the candle in the city center and think you know do it would be dead quiet no one would talk no it would be just amazing and i used to just i would there was you know there was something in me i would just take my camera tripod cycle all the way to the city center and just film all those people film just like i would place the camera on the tripod and just you know pan left pan right getting this face getting this face you know traveling from one part of the town to another one and i met there my friend who was doing fairly similar thing mm. and it's like hey i know you from somewhere so yeah we were in the same film club blah, blah, blah. then he called me the other day saying listen i've got this thing i just want to set up a company there was the time in poland now when we joined the european union and everyone wanted to be their own boss and you know open markets and stuff like that so he called me saying i just want to set up this company i was just thinking maybe filming company wouldn't be a bad idea do you want to meet? Yeah, and then we met. He and then we set up the company. You know, f from then, uh, he was this much more wise marketing uh, business head. You know, the guy who knew how to make money. He knew also how to count money, <laughs> so we wouldn't spend too much. But he was he was the one who was holding it, and I was this crazy guy who just wants to constantly travel and film this and film that, and always asking for more money just to film something which is not maybe necessary but we would actually we would always respect each other no matter how different we were because we are totally different but for the company it worked and we just set up that there was like we were doing like the local commercial like the very low level commercials no and that's how i transferred from that tv kind of news working for someone else working for our for for myself and for my friend and yeah it lasted for almost six years but then we were getting bigger and bigger but also we weren't in the in warsaw warsaw is the capital city of poland mm -hmm. which is obviously as most of capitals in the world they they've got more media power now than any other city so we would try to compete but it wasn't that easy but also by then i already realized how naive i was i'm still very naive i think it's a very good advantage in you know in everyone's life to just dream because i just wanted to have this company to just keep traveling and we've done a few projects when i traveled uh, we would put our company name there and we would, you know, do the documentary, stuff like that. That would help our image. 
but obviously my my coworker he was right you know it cost too much and I wasn't at home to help him no so it, it couldn't last forever and yeah I don't know what next questions you've got but I might cover <laughs> it now yeah you did how then you moved to London so you decide like you need to to live somewhere how no it yeah, it's um, yeah. That company was going well. I used to have then the fantastic girlfriend, which we still, uh, I would say, quite good friends. We we contact each other from time to time. When I go back to Poland, we can actually go and have a coffee. But that was. Uh, I just knew that I'm. I was then twenty seven. What in Polish reality is I should have already had at least two kids <laughs> and obviously be married. And I just knew this is, it's not really my thing <laughs> to do that. And even though it was all went well, but then we started to travel more. I think we went to Rwanda then with my other friends who also studied anthropology or archaeology. I've got also quite close connection to archaeologists because we were in the same building. We were just on different floors. But both archaeologists and, and anthropologists, we just love to parties and we never really needed to be there sharp on every lecture because it was all, you know, basically if you know the stuff, you know the stuff. You don't need to attend it always, no? So we had a good connection, but then I just knew, you know, there's something in it that I just needed. I just needed something else. So I told, you know, I needed to split with my girlfriend. Then I needed to split with my coworker, telling them, listen, this is my fault. I mean, basically, we've been together at work, you know, for six years. It's been fantastic, but it's not, you know, people change. You always get different experience. You want to have different stuff. So. I just need to leave. I just need to go somewhere where I've got more cultures, where I've got more perspectives, no? Because it was all nice when we traveled from Poland, let's say we'd go to Rwanda and then we would come back and people would be, oh guys, you've been so far, you are the real travelers. That was so dangerous. How did you do that? No, come on, it's not dangerous. Just forget about it. You know, forget what you see in media. Put the backpack on. Forget, you know, be more open-minded or be more trustful and then you can experience it yourself although i need to admit here poland ex-communist country when it comes to the issue of trust and being open it's a it's a separate topic no as you're probably aware it wasn't always easy to Basically, having secrets was the way to to live, no? Because everyone had some secrets, but then in the country where everyone could inform on you, they could overhear you in the restaurant and write a note about it and send it, and you would be fucked, no? So people weren't the trust, trusty, no? Trustful that you you don't basically speak to strangers if you don't need to, no? So I still know it's just, I think generations change and stuff, but anywhere in Eastern, I mean, this is my, this is my personal opinion. It's not anything scientific. So I'm sorry if anyone doesn't agree with it totally, but I just think that this issue of being, uh, 
Polish nation is being considered a bit like a bit colder, no? I think if you put the Polish and Italian, we might be a bit different, but not always, no? I've just noticed that Northern Italy can also be a bit <laughs> very similar to Poland. <laughs> but it's the... Uh, it's that thing, no? That you don't you don't talk about your life if you don't need, because you you could get in trouble in it, no? Any any criticism obviously wouldn't be allowed, but any you know any love affairs, any what you really like, any appreciations of the Rolling Stones in a cafe that could get you in trouble, no? Yeah, it's like so, uh, the the life to the others. It was the German yeah. film, yeah, on the East uh, Germany. Yeah, where they have this secret that. service basically everybody was taped yeah, uh tapped. exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. can't have so opinions that's it, yeah it's even um yeah you would have informer you would everyone would have its own i would call it the book yeah like its own document in the secret service no when you when they would know about you more than you probably know about yourself so Yeah, I can understand. Not everyone in Poland would be that. Uh, how can you just go there and you stay with those people? You don't know them. You know they can they they can rob you. You know, of course they could rob you, and and they would from time to time. Obviously, that's the life, no. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. Uh, or, Jesus, there are so many different thoughts coming to my mind. It's basically father of my ex-girlfriend yeah he had this fantastic saying he would live in his in his in his town and he would always park his car and go to his block of flats i think they lived in the third floor and he would never lock his car no he would always just park this car and go there and then there was like a smaller community so the policeman would just No would come no would come to him and he would say, Listen, no no, that you've always leave your car open, you know, one day someone's gonna steal it. And he and his answer was, No, that I, I'm just trying to give the people a chance to be good. Mm. No? That was this kind of attitude which I love, no? Yeah. Like instead of assuming something bad is gonna happen. Yeah, maybe sometimes it's good to just think otherwise and be pleasantly surprised, no? Yeah, yeah, I was like watching, there was a little island somewhere, I watched a documentary about the guy, actually it was one of these guys who traveled, uh, and he went to the last visit island in the world, he traveled there, and it were like, oh, we have a tourist, and uh, yeah, basically they, they even have walls in their houses, because the whole together yeah. the whole community so that's yeah. amazing so now so now i was in armenia and obviously the situation in armenia is a bit different now because of war um so i was staying in the i was staying in the in the hotels where only the refugees would stay and they would you know they would stay there for free they would tidy after after themselves and stuff like that but they would always you know you wouldn't lock your room You wouldn't lock your car. People would be, uh, even then, they would come in the middle of the night when I was s sitting there and doing my rushes or, or like writing something or basically working with my laptop. They would always try to offer me a tea or coffee, you know. And but the thing was like my correspondent, she left, she forgot her passport in the other hotel, and obviously it's it's quite difficult to work in the war zone 
or in the conf in the in the in the country when there is some political conflict because you've got checkpoints yeah quite often you've been stopped and you need to show all your documents and you need to explain all over again what you what you're doing what you're doing here where you're from what's going on so if you don't have a passport it it doesn't put you in a in a good position no in the beginning so so she needed to get it somehow. So what they done? They just gave, you know, they ju she just called this. She just called this hotel and said, like, "Yeah, yeah, that we've got your passport, and we and we're gonna give it to you." And th they and they basically gave it to some random or maybe you know friend taxi driver, who would just drive your own passport through the mountains and give it to you somewhere else in the middle of the night. You know, wow. it's not like and and like that wasn't even any question for them. They've been. The Armenians, I need to admit, they are really one of the kindest people I've met now so far. And I've met quite a lot of different nations and cultures. But uh, I forgot what we were talking about. Oh, yeah. Being open. Yeah. Being, uh, I totally understand there are different people who are in certain places you can't do certain things. And you just need to get rid of it somehow. And where we were now, back? Well, we, we were in London. Where I moved. <laughs> and, where I and moved. Yeah, yeah. but what did, you, what did you do when you first arrived in London? Um, the first years before the BBC? Yeah, I, um, I arrived already knowing that I know how to work with the camera. And I knew what was the market because I came there a bit earlier for the f international fair about the camera equipment, and I just seen how big the market is. So I and I've seen how many cultures are, you know, and how many people cycle. And I'm keen cyclist myself. So I just like, whoa, this is just wonderful. I'm coming. So I bought the ticket. I think a couple of d days after, and after a month, I I landed. I didn't even know, you know, my English was really poor. I mean, it wasn't, it was communicative. It was much worse than now, <laughs> but it's, I just knew that I can't really consider myself like a traveler or cameraman knowing different cultures if I can't even communicate. So one of the reasons was I just need to learn, you know, I just need to get more experience with English. So that's why it was London, but I didn't know anything about London. You know, I just, I just, I bet I, I went online and I booked a hostel, 12 people room, if not 20, now I don't remember, for three nights, the cheapest possible option somewhere in London. I didn't even know where the city, uh, how London looks like. I just knew there is a river. I knew there are things north of the river and south of the river, but where is the actual center, you know? How does, it, is it better to live south or, now, or, or, or north or east or west? I didn't know anything of that, so I just booked those three, three nights in South London, in Borough. Now I know where is it, and uh, I just landed. I just took my backpack only, and uh, my Canon 60D. It was the DSLR camera, my laptop. Yeah, and I, I've arrived. I woke up. The next day, I went to the local breakfast place. I bought a SIM card and I went online on Gantry and said, OK, where do I want to live now? And this is how it uh, started. Now, then I found the room, then I moved to the room, then I found that. Then I bought a bicycle because bicycle was the only 
possible way I could move around London and uh, and not spend a lot of money, no? Because I didn't have any money, obviously. So I, yeah, I was just I just knew I need to do something. No, I I I I, I, I obviously checked some bars and stuff, but but my English wasn't even good enough to be a bartender, so they <laughs> so they declined my offers. I found this stuff in the bicycle workshop, and then with a f uh, my friend who was already here, Polish uh, lady friend, she was working already for. Uh, for a TV called Islam Channel, which was the Muslim, more like orthodox, like mm, I wouldn't say orthodox, the mo like more of the religion channel, no, where you would focus on prayers, you would focus on Quran, like more educational channel for Muslims, uh, which to me then was like. Okay, what do I know about Muslims? You know, if I'm Polish anthropologist, it would make sense actually to learn maybe something more than than all I've seen of or heard in media, which is obviously not the image I wanted and I believed. So I found a job as a camera operator there. It was called the multi-skilled, uh, the multi-skilled operator. So like cameraman sound and the vision mixer as well. And uh, yeah, I started there. After a month in London, I was already working as a cameraman. It's obviously in the place where, when when I didn't really see myself, but I just said, okay, at least I I couldn't, to be honest, to be frank, the quality of output and camera work wasn't something I would aim for. That wasn't <laughs> the reason I moved to London. To work back on mini DV tapes and stuff like that, but at least the cultural, cultural knowledge and all this input was so big for me that I was just okay. I'm st I'm just staying because I really want to know how it all works. So I spent uh, half of a year working in many different mosques. I was probably blacklisted by Russian government. And uh, sorry. <laughs> Jesus, that would be, yeah, that I was definitely blacklisted by Russian government when I was in Moscow, but that was now in UK. So, uh, but I was okay, it's still, I prefer that than just work somewhere else, not as a cameraman. And uh, yeah, they even sent me to Pakistan, I was like traveling a bit with them. I learned much more, I learned, you know, I've, I've met some wonderful people. Uh, as well as some less wonderful people, obviously, as in every job. But I've just, I, I gained so much confidence with dealing with culture, which is totally different to Polish. And I just knew I could walk into mosque, speak to imams, speak to, uh, speak to worshippers in a manner that they felt respected and at least understood or or they knew that I'm trying to understand things. I learned a bit of Arabic as well. It was, you know, fantastic, fantastic experience. Uh, many funny stories, but yeah, in general, you, it was great. And then you start freelancing. Yeah, I started, then I knew, you know, after those few months when, when I when I already learned where is North London, <laughs> where is South London, and, and just a bit more, you know, I started to live in North London, then I moved 
and I started to learn the reality I'm in, I just said, okay, now let me try what is here else, no? So I went on those old websites when I was, when I advertised myself as a cameraman for films as well, no? And I've, I've noticed there is quite a big market for the independent movies, cinema, stuff like that, where obviously, sorry, where obviously you, you, you wouldn't get paid well or usually nothing at all, but at least you could, you know, you could learn something. You could, you could, uh, you could Built get up. used to it. No, yeah, but basically just not sitting at home, but just basically doing something. Yeah. So, so that's where I started to work more and more often. First as a stills photographer, then there was one of the actors. I don't remember his name. No, he was he was playing with Johnny Depp in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, obviously, Johnny Depp is not known the best advertisement, but uh, he was pushing me some, okay, that you're taking really good steals, man, that you should be doing this, this and that. And then, you know, from one person giving good advice, usually people really liked me as a Polish man. I was really hardworking, so they could see it, you know. I was getting higher and higher and also like separately, uh, there was this whole big market of uh, Asian weddings or Sikh weddings. No, that's the other thing. Like I would put it together in the same kind of experience uh, area as Islam Channel. That obviously I don't want to film weddings. You know, none of you know most of professional cameramen they would never admit they've done any, although we've all done done a lot, and then. You wouldn't like to, you know, there's nothing you're gonna learn from it and stuff and, and the people gonna treat you like you just don't know anything. But there was this massive cultural knowledge again, no? Like filming sick wedding, which is like, you know, a few hundred people, usually in Windsor and massive like palaces. And uh, you are usually one of the five six crew of camera people yeah it's like massive film set no with the amazing food amazing fashion you know all those beautiful women guys like everyone looks really good everyone is really uh, helpful and and i and i and i and i found like uh, often recurring jobs with two companies were catering for sick weddings yeah and that's uh, it, that's quite interesting because they uh, they are usually booked years in advance because you do one massive sick weddings and then whoever else from the same community you know you, you kind of become a fashionable person I mean not a person like a company everyone wants to have their wedding filmed also by this company because because they've been so praised no so you've kind of got those jo jobs lined up no for no, four years which is good uh, unless COVID happens no obviously but then we didn't know about that the only downside was it's weekends especially in summer you know you don't if you're a young lad in the new country you want to meet people you don't really want to waste weekends on filming weddings but but i've learned a lot i've also filmed copt wedding nigerian wedding that's a whole separate story uh, a lot of experience even camera experience because you need to deal with different situations but also you know then you just know it and then you meet those people somewhere in london and you can you can 
relate somehow. You can tell them stories, and then they're oh, the, I didn't know that you know those stuff, you know. And then you, and then you connect so much easier, no? Because you know a bit of their culture, you know, a bit of. So I was there's so many. You've got yeah. London is very multicultural city, uh, but so often neighbors wouldn't know. You know what the other neighbor does because they are just from different country, no? And they wouldn't, or they are just. That's. I think it's quite common in UK. You don't. You just don't wanna offend. You don't wanna find out. I mean, you don't wanna ask questions because it might be seen. It might be perceived as incorrect or politically incorrect or racist or you know all of those kind of stuff. So people naturally are just. Let's better not ask. You know, let's just assume that we know, but they don't know. No? So if you don't speak, you don't experience it yourself. So all those, those first few years, they gave me, a, they boosted my confidence as a, you know, uh, cameraman as well as a person living in multicultural society where I was open and thriving for it and asking, you know, and they would know, okay, let's just use Marek because he's been there and he knows those people and he knows how to behave, how to respect and stuff. Fantastic stuff. And also not even mentioning that all of that stuff I was learning from books in Poland during anthropology lectures, I've got it all here. No, I've got it all. I can, I can meet those people. I can date. I can be in relationships with women I would never meet in Poland, you know, so just just every single day was just a blessing for me, you know, and it is until today, you know, learning so much. Um, and then, like, fr from there, like, you, after a few years, you start, you, you apply, then uh, you start working for the BBC World Service. Uh, yeah, it was words yeah. for the cameraman and how did, how did it happen and why why this job again is probably because it cultures and yeah it's the mm, i just don't want to go into too many details because it's really a lot but uh yeah i was feeling culturally quite confident by then and and i also started to invest in my own equipment i bought my camera that was the mm -hmm. time that we met i think each other as well on this and not exactly we met when during filming some tamil um tamil uh, kind of x-factor thing in edmonton in edmonton east london northeast london okay. do you remember that was that one yeah 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 yeah, this is, you know, something which you would normally, you wouldn't put it properly in your CV because it was all a bit messy, but the people were great. You could meet fantastic yeah, people like we met, <laughs> no? It was great fun. Um, and also amazing insurgent culture, no? Yeah. Not yeah. many people yeah. would feel Tamil reality shows, no? Or stuff yeah. like that, no? Fantastic. You, you see me, I'm constantly with his smile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I say, yeah, like, yeah, I just, no. it's just great. Like, wow, what they're doing the, this for free and they're paying me for it. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, that's that, really that you can't explain those things. It just happens that you know you, that you meet those people and people were from all over the world as well. Like the whole crew, us, we were all, yeah. you know, I'm not sure if there was anyone like more London local there because that, that was quite like um, low paid and, and the conditions were very weird but you know it was amazing story you know and that's why we knew each I mean that, that's why how we met 
but uh, I started to get, you know, I started to get more jobs, more like serious jobs, more serious clients, but everything started to look quite similar to what I had in Poland. So a lot of corporate videos, I started to call myself then lighting cameraman, which is a bit of like, I think only people in UK can understand what does it even mean. <laughs> Basically someone who can film and also the lighting and, and you know, you would do sound or you would try to work with sound men, but that's also a different story. But uh, I started to get it there, but you know, I could, I started to pay normal bills and everything started to look normal, but it was just starting to be boring. How many times I can go to some massive offices? Of course, I've got, you know, I used to get on pretty well with all those marketing people and uh, they would call me back quite often, but it's just like, is it what I like? Like, I can't see the way out of it. And then I've seen, yeah, I've seen the BBC advert. I just thought, okay, come on, I just need to at least try because if I don't try, then, you know, I'm going to blame myself always and and it doesn't cost that much. So I've just done that. They asked me for the interview. I came for the interview, not, not even really being that serious because to be honest, I've just bought the camera. I needed now to pay it back. I need to do all of the, this is not the time to just completely changing it again, no? But they called me back. They said like no one was even near, and and they like and they like really want to work with me. So I said, okay, then and this is how I got there. No, uh, to be honest, yeah, the thing which paid off probably as well. They were, they were, they were looking for someone who can quite often work with this BBC because BBC has got different services now, especially BBC World Service. And one of them is BBC BBC Arabic. They've got BBC Persian, BBC Russian service, all of those stuff. But quite a big one is BBC Arabic and they needed someone to do it. And I mean, to do that and the other things, obviously, at BBC. But I think my experience with Islam Channel and my confidence, obviously, BBC Arabic is completely different to the Islam Channel. Yeah, like these are two different TV stations focusing on completely different things. The, The only thing which probably connects them is the Arabic language and maybe some culture. But uh, yeah, that might have helped me. Also, all those questions about war zones and going into hostile environment, that was always kind of my dream. Uh, and I liked it. It wasn't even the, the dream. I was actually kind of self-training myself into it. All those health and safety stuff, how to, you know, how to escape situations, how to negotiate. I kind of subconsciously already knew it. So when they were asking those questions, I actually, I think I had a few good answers and that helped me to get in. Yeah, that helped me to get in. I was, I needed to sell my camera then and just, you know, close all of those, my, the whole, you know, when was it? 2016, four years, yeah, four years of working with clients. And you probably know, and other people know that three, four years, this is the moment when it all starts paying back. And then the moment it starts paying back, I cut it. I said, sorry, guys, I just moved. I can send you to someone else. I think I used to send them to you as well. It's just, you know, because I wasn't doing that. Because once you work for BBC, you've got the, you, uh, you're working for them exclusively, actually. You, you don't, I don't think you always need to, but it just takes you so much time and energy that you don't even want to do anything else, no? Because there's no time for it. So, yeah, that's how I stayed with BBC. I moved them until today. And how and do you get the training there? Like uh, you ha- you got a special training. Do you want to ex- 
explain uh, yeah. yes, how, the how training it works. Yeah, we've got, the, uh, you mean the hosta environment training? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's the, um, you can be, obviously there are many different areas you can work as a cameraman, but if you want those, to those more dangerous places, you need to, f you need to have training. Uh, it's basically, put bluntly, it's, they want paper that you've been trained so you can have less insurance or in case something happens to you, your company has done everything to prepare you for that. No, So it works like that. But on the other hand, it gives you really good, really valuable knowledge as well. So one of them, one of them is you need to, you need to learn how to work with crowds and different manifestations how how mob can get violent how police can get violent how to you know how to handle those situations they basically throw at you uh, like um they put you in the inflammable suit and they f and they throw the petrol bombs so they throw the molotov cocktails yeah wow only for you to feel how the how the flame spread you know how it is to feel and then they you know they would save you from that but it's basically to put a lot of uh, that's quite ex that's, that's just excellently done because on one hand it's us journalists training that we've got different scenarios we need to go through there is a police who is training at the same time because they also need to learn how to work with media people, how to work with mob. And there is the mob, which consists of amazing extras, you know, people who would work on the professional film sets. And they are just bloody scary, you know. They can really be, they can really behave like, you know, drugged, drunk, you know, violent stuff. You know, they would be half naked with, without shirts, you know, with like, with the, with the wooden bricks yeah so they would throw it at you they would throw those bottles at you as well you know so you can get all of that experience when it happens in real you at least know okay i i know how it feels yeah so you kind of get rid of this first element of shock so you know okay this is how it was during training i i can re recognize it and now i can move on yeah and do the other stuff so this is that this is really valuable for me obviously some people get so scared that they say, okay, I'm never going to do it again. And that's also good for them. Yeah. Because otherwise you don't want to be in a team when basically as, as it, as it should be everywhere, I think, but BBC, BBC has got it quite well covered. If any member of your team doesn't want to do something, the whole team doesn't do it. There's no excuse of convincing someone for any danger. No. So that's uh, it's so important to be in team with people who are experienced a bit more. Yeah. So that's one training, but then much better one. That one lasts, I think, two days. The other one is four days training, and uh, you go to the English countryside, and this is like hostile environment training where you learn much more from the war zones and any situation of unrest where it gets pretty dangerous so kidnappings uh shelling getting shot at uh getting blown up <laughs> being followed 
uh, getting changed by car, anything, yeah, any any of those situations which which I dreamed as a young boy, but obviously I liked it there as well. It's basically to get you out of the situation, yeah. That's the. the so the more you've got different approaches, yeah. BBC has got obviously the British way is uh, stay calm, and if they want something, give it to them. No, don't fight. Never fight back. Don't try to be a hero. No. So this is how we're being taught. Just basically comply, and we're gonna try to get you away from there. No. But other TV stations got a bit different approach. They said, no, no, the, like the footage is important. I'm going to carry on. I'm going to use every means to get it. No, so it's different wow. approaches. No, I don't want to name the countries which do this and that. But it's um, in our case, it's more about, you know, learning all this first aid, but first aid in the war zone. So when you've got when there is a shelling, someone gets shot, how to, you know, how to stop bleeding when you lose the limb when you you know how to how to how to stop bleeding from the gunshot wound all of that stuff uh and how how do you escape chasing being chased by a car <laughs> yeah if you be basically being ch yeah there it it all depends on the situation but basically just don't put yourself in danger if there is you just need to stop there's no point of escaping speeding for the usually from the situation you don't even know where you are and they already know where you are anyway and everyone knows about you because the moment you land in some country it's usually they already know what you're doing um but the yeah the the stuff which is like the most the most disturbing for some is the kidnapping no because obviously kidnapping these days especially of journalists is it's pretty pretty common thing because you're getting more exposure you can you can deal you can demand you know once having hostages from famous tv channels uh so yeah you just do your stuff you just do your training during the day you do different scenarios at some point the car stops they pull you out they put they put the black bag on your head and they push you into a car and they kidnap you and there's no fun game no they basically they swear at you, they abuse you verbally. They could, back then, they could even, you know, puff the cigarette smoke at you. I don't think it's allowed anymore, but it's perfectly natural situation. Anything, anything which which should scare you, know? And then they lock you up somewhere you don't even know because you can never look. And they, you know, in my case, we needed to keep our hands on the wall for, I don't know even for how long, any movement, they would, you know, they would, they would scream. And you, from time to time, they would take one of us to the, uh, you know, just to just to interrogate us. So you would hear screams, you know, all of those things, which is, I mean, I've never been kidnapped yet. But I assume that's nothing comparing to what really happens, no? But the whole point of it is, at least you get, as I mentioned, this first element of shock. It's out of, you know, okay, this is exactly how I, you know, let's say they kidnap you. It's okay, I went through that once, so let me calm down a bit and just, you know, comply with, the, you know, what is. And then this particular scenario happened like, I think they were interrogating us for quite long. And then, uh, and, and it's the same as I mentioned with this other training, amazing actors, amazing actress, 
ex extras. They are really convincing. Yeah, there's no, you know, you can always like they've got the safe word. Yeah, you can just save, you can just say the safe word, and they know that you are in distress, and then they're gonna take you out of the scenario. No, but as long as you can cope it, cope with it. No, because it's good future and uh, in this particular scenario some someone arrived there were some arguments those guys usually speak in different languages as well so it's all make it pretty real because you don't even know what's happening who is who is arguing with who and about what and then there were gunshots those gunshots are pretty real as well and they use fireworks all sort of stuff and then they disappear and then there's the moment you can actually communicate with others now and say okay what has happened now because normally also i mean you're never gonna understand it if you don't have this bloody bag on your head for half an hour you don't understand who you are with in the room who's there how you you know what's the situation how big is the room you don't you basically don't know anything so there's this technique you would pretend you need to cough and this is the way how you how you let others know that you're here yeah you would always kind of make like the not to anger anyone who just kidnapped you but obviously with like the most real scenarios just to let okay i'm here i'm in the same room as you are yeah because that at least uh, this is how you can communicate and then you know the shooting happened suddenly it all went quiet and we just one of us just look okay that the room is empty and we all escaped no there was this uh, but there's also you know the other there was a, in the same situation the when they were kidnapping us from the car there was a lot of a lot of distress people were screaming stuff because yeah you actually got bloody scared no people were screaming and then one of us one of the guy in my team he managed to stay low in the car and he hit and they didn't find him. And then in the first opportunity, opportunity he just uh, he, he just ran away from the car into the field. And then they actually needed to find him because he, you know, those like situations are quite that you that you act like in the real way, you know. So that was his way of escaping, and quite good, you no, know, because he managed. But uh, you know, it's basically every situation is good. It just. I mean, sorry, like the whole situation is pretty bad. But every, whatever your brain brings and suggests you to do, just try it. That's this training for mm. yeah? And then, obviously, no one wishes it. You've got the special kidnap forms later when you actually, later when I went in the real war zone, yeah, when I needed to, you needed to fill the kidnap form. It's this thing when you need to... I, don't, I, I can't tell you more details, but it's basically it's for establishing by your company, let's say in my case BBC, if I'm still alive. They've got the certain answers to very private questions, which they need to ask kidnappers to uh, to find out if I'm alive. Because if, if they get an answer, it means I'm alive. Because quite often, you know, they just, they just, how you call it, bluff, bluffing, yeah? Yeah that you're there but you're not you know and in these days sending anyone a video or sound or even phone call it's not real no you never you can never trust so yeah when you kind of feel that fill in you fill in those answers and questions which only your mother knows or your father and your brother then it's yeah it's a bit of it's a weird feeling no it's a little it's bit really like writing your own uh, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of, how do you say, 
uh, will, left your will. will, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. anything just like that. No, yeah, yeah, because there is a question, you know, what do you want, what do you want your parents to be informed of and stuff like that. No, so like, yeah, I needed to fill it in a few times since then. But yeah, that's the that was like I was I just love this whole training everything. No, I I was quite good in certain scenarios, but in certain in some of them I was just really ashamed of the way how I behaved. No, and that was like a trigger to me. Like okay, I need to work on that because if things like that happen, I don't want to you know I don't want to fail like that. But yeah. It's, you know, you've got it lasts four days, four intense days in the rain or sun, no matter what's the weather, you're being assigned a team, you've got actually a four by four car and you drive. It's like a massive film set. Basically, it's like a, you are an actor in the film set. No? Hmm. And and then so. uh, when then you start working like uh, where where you work and uh, and how do you find working with, with journalists? Are you sent with journalists or you are in your own or both? Or how do you find working with them? Or is well, it depends on the... I've got, uh, I've, I, work, I work in many various scenarios. It's not, I basically work as a cameraman and editor. I mean, I can edit my own footage uh, work my own footage on assignment and there's no time to bring it back to base and stuff like that so i can do that but i don't report i'm not in front of the camera and yeah so i need to usually have a journalist but the journalist can be can be just a journalist can be more like advanced correspondent or i can have a producer with me so then it's correspondent the producer and me uh, sometimes there is even like a translator or a driver so the teams vary no it depends on the situation when you've got a very fast-paced situation let's say there is a terrorist attack like when there was a terrorist attack here in Westminster or when it was this Weihnachtsmarkt in Berlin, the lorry case, then obviously I would go there with a correspondent, but he needs to be on air so often that he doesn't have time to browse the news, no, the latest development. So then you're being sent with a producer who's got time to look for it, you know, check the accommodation, check the whole situation. It all depends. And um, yeah, I think it as we said in the beginning that that the whole um attempt of not judging anyone that helps especially when you work with world service i work with correspondent across the spectrum everywhere no from asia to west africa southern africa southern america europeans obviously americans um far asia no Middle East and everyone has got different way of work. No, you've got that, that we all know that, you know, people look different in time, you know, time concept is different for different cultures. Uh, exp how you explain stuff, how you talk about it, how you how you approach the topic. Uh, this is all different. And I know a lot of a lot of a lot of people can't cope with it because someone is just last minute 
or like changes its mind and i mean yeah it's just everyone is different and put into a different attitude and culture yeah it's basically sometimes let's say i do that's the less less glamorous part of work but it also happens let's say i'm doing those lives yeah let's say there was a terrorist attack and i've got this guy let's say from bbc persian in front of me and he's talking the thing but then right after him is coming someone from the from the nigerian service or or the or the thai service or tamil service yeah or urdu or like you know and they've got their own version of story i mean like the same version of story but they need to communicate it in a, in a different way to the viewer no so it also happens when let's say i work with one particular service and i need to edit a quick video explaining something it's going to be different to explain it to the russian viewer to british viewer to chinese viewer no everyone has got different way of communicating yeah so you need to kind of understand it usually you don't speak those languages so that's the additional hurdle uh, but i've be, as i told you i've just, uh, there's no way of getting upset. I always try to explain things, even if we don't understand, we need to somehow cooperate because then we both lose if we argue. So I never, I don't, f I've, I've never had the situation I argued. I had the one situation when I was on the edge, on the verge, and one which I wouldn't like to repeat. But other than that, 99.9, I'm just, I, j I just need to take it as it is. Say, okay, so we're doing it like you want? Okay, let's do it as you want. And boom. And then let's just do it. And then I pack the camera and move somewhere else. I don't need to, you know, there's no point for me wasting energy, no? So... I just wonder... Actually, yeah, I, I, just just the one thing that it that it actually gonna take you far. You're gonna go far in the in the TV world. If you're just being a decent person without argument, <laughs> that already puts you ahead of a lot of people. That's everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, especially in our business. Like. Yeah. <laughs> but I wonder how the dynamics works with like when you are kind of correspondent sent to to the action actually of a war or a, a protest and something. Uh, how the dynamic works with the journalist how uh, because sometimes it just I, I found it silly in fairness like I see the journalist with the helmet being in front of something where they're throwing stuff at each other and it's kind of look a little bit sensational for the yeah, for the fact yeah, yeah, and yeah. it looks like yeah what, what are you doing there like uh, you can't stay away with the zoom uh, you know I mean it's be sad to me <laughs> like so I wonder yeah, how it works like with the dynamics when how you make the decisions uh and you know how how do you yeah it's all talk? different it's never the same i would mm. say the people are different the journalists are different yeah the only thing which we should keep the same is to inform it in some way and put it in words or form that that the viewer understands it and they feel it in and they feel that they got something from it that's the thing which which is maybe the same but even though even then you've got different level of experience 
people doing things which they, you know sometimes people need to report on something they didn't want or they just like the situation push them that they need to report on it but they would never be in front of the camera you know we've got the radio journalists which suddenly need to do the tv live you know that's a i can i can always share with my experience or something but it's then you've got different personalities you've got you've got more diva styles you've got more hero styles you know you've got all of that uh my personal thing is i i'm I'm now much more, much bigger fan of how we call it, the, like the digital videos. Yeah. So nowadays you've got still the distinct, the 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 difference between TV report and a digital report, something which you, which you would probably watch on YouTube or Instagram or you know something which just gives you the information, usually in a short form. And it's usually pictures and maybe subtitles or some titles. No, you don't need anyone being there in the f in, in the shot and explaining it. But that all comes from the traditional TV times, when when TV channels, particular TV channels, when there was no social media, they would have more presence. Yeah, they would be more people would watch them because it's a particular channel. They wouldn't watch it only because of the situation yeah so now when you just scroll social media you can see different videos or reports and you might sometimes even miss which tv channel was it no because you've got it all in one place but back then you would you would just follow the certain tv channel so you would get used to certain personalities who would be like your kind of role models or guru or you no know, this is the real expert because he's been covering this region for 20 years so so i really want to know what he says and then those people back like 1980s 90s obviously that would give a lot of value to the report because you would know okay this guy was there on the ground he's there and he's telling me the story but today the style has a bit changed no you don't really need to have those personalities and i not i'm never a fan of ptc which is called the piece to camera so it's this place you know when you've got the pre-recorded someone telling you stuff uh, I'm not a fan if it's not necessary. There are situations where it's necessary. Let's say you need to really explain the stuff around you, or you've got someone who you're actually talking to during that, no? Or you're actually putting things in the perspective, you know, sometimes, or you, let's say, you know, there are certain situations it makes sense, but quite often it's just basically talking about this, which we already can see, and actually you would see it better if you leave the frame, <laughs> no? Because, because then we can see, you know, don't tell us things about which are there, but then you would be surprised so many, so many times those, those very own correspondents, they don't want to do it, but they are being told yeah, it by yeah, the editors, yeah. no? it's not like you know there's a special form you need to sometimes follow and it's now we are in this edge in this time of change yeah so we try to adapt to more digital stuff but then you've got a lot of big personalities which it would be the end of their career no because now you technically don't always need to have a correspondent because you can have someone who is well known in topic he doesn't need to be in front of the camera but he can, you know, he can work with you as a camera person and you both 
film brilliant stuff and you put it all in subtitles well you can still report and understand like uh, you know the, the fact that having some personalities will help a tv channel um like being represented then you know in their opinions and it's good probably to have that and and I, and I like, you know, I think there are situations and situations. I understand now is, yes, it's true. There could be the the editor and the TV station that want you to act in a certain way. But, you know, in other situations, like for an interview or uh, normal correspondence, but it's just on the front line, sometimes it looks like uh, a fish yeah, out on of the, the front bowl. Li- on the fr- yeah, on the front line, I find it silly quite often. Yeah. And also, it's putting in danger all of the other team. Yeah. Because you don't need to be there no. filming that. And if you don't get it in the first time, which usually doesn't happen, no? You always get it second, third time. I mean, like, you've got very pro guys who can just get the really long 30-second PTC in the first go, and then you run away, yeah? But sometimes, you know, there are things. And it's you, you need to always balance it, no? And that, but then there's a lot of, like, you would need to put that helmet sometimes, even if the people in the shot, they don't have helmet because, yeah. because then you're going to get in trouble yeah. because yeah. you've been there and you've got that. So what we didn't cover yet, I quite often travel with the personal high risk assistant or the advisor, you know, it's like the security guys who can advise us and, and who are who are always there, my back watchers and people who help me not to stumble on some mine or stuff like that. But it's uh, there's all this dynamic in the team. Everyone needs to get something, yeah? yeah. So I also sometimes want to get this shot because it's like, listen, this is the most important shot. But they can just say, listen, this is too dangerous. You're going to put us in trouble. Let's not do it. Let's go back. But then also, you know, if... I, if they allow me to do that little thing, then I'm going to go a little extra mile somewhere else, no? And it's all, everyone yeah. in the team needs to be kind of happy. So what I always say, being a cameraman, and I think everywhere in journalism, it's like my, my, my camera skills, I use them maybe, what, 15%? The rest is psychology. You know, how do I get on with the team how do i survive the whole situation how do i keep creative how do i uh, connect with contributors how do i convince certain people to go there and film this you know it's it's all about what kind of person you are if you're gonna be with you, you can be amazing camera person brilliantly skilled but if you are just a if you are an idiot and if you don't respect people, then they're not gonna call you back, no? Because not not because no one wants to spend a week in some terrible hotel when there is nothing else to do with someone who does perfect images, but is basically a terrible person to be with, no? Yeah. So um, social skills are important. Yeah, but I totally agree with those. The the other. Uh, the other quite funny one when you've got the weather reports when you've got some tornadoes or stuff and you've got this correspondence hang, hanging there in those <laughs> heavy rain trying to deliver anything it's like, okay what's the point <laughs> yeah that's, yeah, that's yeah, just that's that just at least lying. you can actually what are you doing <laughs> <I got> just... <laughs> yeah but i mean if we weren't on air that every cameraman has got perfect stories with different uh, correspondents you, just, Everyone you have to got, try not to laugh <laughs> yeah you, you, you can just mention you, you can just mention 
a situation and everyone knows who you've been working with no yeah. but also i'm sure they've got the same stories about us yeah both cameramen and camera women so it's all uh, i'm sure they in the work like that when you when you spend so much time with someone and it takes you out of home and you are just there together there's just so many stories that it's always yeah you know, and how, how is uh, like flying around and traveling through those kind of areas? And if, if you had any problems with uh, local authorities and how have you approached those issues? Yeah, I always got problems, no? It's not, I mean, I can tell you f from the time before COVID happens, because now I've yeah. got even more problems to travel with. But uh, I mean to travel. But um, now there are problems beginning with the customs. You know, I spend, I usually, I usually tra as a camera person, I usually travel with a lot of luggage. No, it's not like people think, oh yeah, it's so cool that you travel, you've been so many planes. And it's like, yeah, it is. I still like it because I like to suffer. I'm like, you know, a bit <laughs> of masochist with those things. But in practice, it means you spend a lot of time packing in the way that you can still take it on the plane and then knowing that the moment you land you might need to use it because you never know what's going to happen then you that you need to turn up at the airport not like an hour before but sometimes three hours before you need to load it all usually by yourself because sometimes you don't travel all in one team you meet people from different because bbc has got many different offices all over the world so let's say i'm going to when i was flying to Khartoum. One guy was actually flying from London, but on a different day, my my other friend was fr flying from Nairobi, you know, that you just meet there at some point. So sometimes you are on your own, and this is how I tend to think that I'm always going to be left on my own, because otherwise I'm going to be always upset. So I always assume I need to count on myself only. So you, so you, so you, so you turn up at this airport, five different cases, well over any, any luggage access, now you need to pay for it and explain it all. You usually carrying a lot of lithium bar uh, lithium batteries, so you need to all experience, uh, explain that. Then you need to go to customs, you need to explain them what you're doing, sign this paper, sign that paper, you know. You are, by this time you are already really exhausted <laughs> anyway, you know. And then if you manage to send it, and then when you land, it's the same, you know, where is your luggage, where is this? Then the other customs, but this time it's more complicated because they might not speak your language or they might not even know what they should be signing you or like sometimes they think that they know better, but then you tell them, no, actually you shouldn't be doing it like that. Then you need to know not to <laughs> get into argument. Then when you travel with drones or different other things, they can just confiscate it. It's also, it's basically, I mean, if you traveled yourself, you definitely know every country, every situation, uh, uh, every situation gives you different way you can approach it. And it comes from your experience, your personality. So in my case, it's always smile, no matter what happens, no matter what I'm how I'm upset or tired. If I'm just not gonna approach it with a smile or with this way of, listen, you are the boss, I'm just this cameraman of this TV station, all I want is just put this stamp here and let me go through. I don't wanna have any troubles, I can, you know, joke here and there, and it usually works. 
But when it doesn't, you know, there are countries where BBC helps. I mean, it helps when you're from BBC. There are countries where it doesn't help. So you need to know when to use it, when to put your BBC in favor, or maybe when to hide it, no? Um, yeah. I, d I didn't have any any issues with bribes. No, I didn't even, I didn't even remember that. Uh, obviously, when it comes to the situation, we can't do anything about it and we can't give any bribes. So then, you know, we just don't do the thing. That's a turnaround. Yeah, it's the, but it's it usually it's it, it's your correspondent. Sometimes when you go already to cover the story, it's not you usually who came up with that story. It's someone else. So that, that, that someone else should have it already kind of covered. But they obviously they don't know about the equipment. Why? So... About the traveling with a, with equipment is totally different series of po of podcasts we can have, no? But how how do you travel on land? Like, uh, is is any problems like you had there? Is it just basically their um, post where they they stop you? That's that's all. Them. How you, you haven't you found much? Yeah, you haven't found much problematic. No, it depends on the country. It's the. Mm. It depends on. It's the. You know, when we were now, when I was in Armenia, they would always stop us. Then now I've got. I've, I'm dual citizen. Yeah, I'm British Polish. So, I've got different documents I can travel with. Then it depends which country I am. Maybe that passport is better. Maybe that passport would be better then. You know, it's it. This is all of different strategy because those guys at those checkpoints, they usually you just you know that's the other situation. Just get yourself in their shoes. They are standing there. It's usually cold, late. They don't. They are not probably getting really paid for it. They're just kind of there. You know, seeing seeing those journalists doing this and that. Obviously, they want to first. They just they are just curious. What you're doing. Then some, if you upset them, they've got full right just to keep you for hours out, out of the car somewhere there. You know, they can do that. Why not? So you always need to be their friend, you know, kind of. But of course, if, I've, if I'm in the war zone and I'm traveling with my tripod, tripod always going to ask, I, and what's that? No, and you need to explain, you know, it's not a gun or something. That's the other thing. Then the other, when I was in Iraq, we were, uh, when we were going to, uh, to Erbil or in Erbil, I mean, it's basically the, the area of Iraq, obviously, what, when you've got, you've got Iraqis, you can have Peshmerga fighters, you can have Kurds, no? So I think that your listeners can distinguish between Kurds and Iraqis in Baghdad in terms of culture. It's basically like two different countries almost. So we would have different checkpoints. And one checkpoint would be the Baghdad, the guys from Baghdad. They would work for the country, you know, for the government. And somewhere else in the checkpoint, there would be the Kurds. They would be the ones who would uh, find along those guys from the government, but they had different agenda. They not they want to have their own country and Kurdistan and stuff like that. So they would ask different questions, yeah? And then, so we would have two cars. One driver would be Kurd and another one would be Iraqi from Baghdad. And then we would know which checkpoint it is. So we would swap the cars and in the front there would be, let's say we approach the Kurdistan checkpoint, we would put the Kurd driver in the front because he would speak 
quicker, no? And then he, we would, they would let us to go, no? But if we would get it wrong, let's say it would be the the Baghdad, the Baghdadi guy first in the Kurdistan checkpoint, they would say, okay, now you guys just need to go on the side and just wait there until we're done with all of those other 50 cars and then we're gonna come and and like find out what you actually want to do here yeah so there would be sometimes there would be the question of doing the report that they are not doing the report no because they would make it difficult so you the wars are those when when you've got teenagers no there are certain i haven't really experienced that but uh, that was the i think it's the case now in mozambique where it's even more difficult to go no but it's uh, when you've got non-paid young guys with guns, usually on drugs, who just basically want to rob you. They've got no, they are not interested in any report for any TV channel. Yeah, those guys, you can negotiate with them. Yeah, it's it's a bit like here in London. No, you know, I've been I've been in pretty bad places. I managed to escape with my life a number of times. But it's still, even in London, if I approach five teenagers, I never know when it's going to go. Because you can't reason with certain, you know, you've got the older people, at least they can already, they like experience a bit in life. They know, you know, what's going to happen. But the kids, you know, they're not You're more predictable. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm talking about myself when I was young. It was the same, you know, I'm not going to, you know, it's difficult to reason with anyone who's got a gun and is drunk, no? And it's 15, <laughs> no? It happened so to difficult. you? No, luckily that one, I mean, I had kids with, uh, you know, with guns and stuff, but they, I don't think I was kept, no, I, there was no situation. I, wo I, I literally felt my life depends on that underage person. Yeah. That was, that didn't happen to me yet. Probably it will. Let's see. And what was the situation you escaped, you would say? Life situation, treating situation. Well, I've had the numbers of, situ there are situations which, there's a lot of stuff which happened to us and we just don't talk about it. Okay. Because there's no point. Uh, just not, I can just mention the situation, but not the countries, but I can mention you the one you probably know about, which happened to me in... It was Iraq. In I I Iraq, yeah, yeah, that was actually my first deployment, no? Can you believe that? It's just, I just joined BBC. <laughs> no, my first deployment was I went to Rio, no? I went, oh, here. I went to Olympics. Oh, yeah. And that was brilliant. No? A lot of, you know, simple jobs kind of, in. You know, Doing a lot of lives on the beach, Copacabana, Ipanema, <laughs> no, I just, I loved it, no, absolutely loved it. Then there was a lot of editing, but, but that was great. And then they called me, Mark, do you want to go to Libya? No, I was like, no. well, I won't, but I'm now in, in on the beach, Brazil, and I'm not, I don't think Libya, I mean, that was what, that was when, Kadda that was after Gaddafi. And there was nothing was predictable in this country. As it now, it's much more predictable than it was. I've been there since, so I know a bit of the feeling. It's yeah, it's it is one of those countries you don't really know who to trust. I mean, the best is not to trust anyone, but you never know when the thing's gonna go. 
and and back then you would yeah there's just no way you can even stick to anything because sometimes what we do we stick to a bit like let's say we'd stick to a bit of a government side or we would stick to someone who's got who can give us a bit of shelter in the way we can be embedded with the forces you know we can at least travel with someone you know that we obviously need to be objective and we're not trying to take any sides but we need to function somehow so we can't just be left in the middle ground when you are just you know everyone can shoot at you and take you and you've got no protection whatsoever so we usually got at least we are there with the government of certain country or with the army yeah but then in libya it wouldn't be that so so i said i don't think it's the really best thing for the deployment uh, for the first war deployment for me and it's okay yeah, yeah we fully understand uh, because the thing is that i can always say no to any deployment yeah it's oh. not like uh i'm not getting paid extra people think oh yeah you must earn so much money so, no they don't get paid extra it's the same ma money i get to go in, in in front of westminster and then to hang on the front line no but the thing is you've got different i mean i'm not doing this job for money that's first of all and also you get more overtime and you know it's a different it's basically a different job it's just that it's the same money but different <laughs> job and then um what i was saying yeah but then they ask okay but there's this other thing there's you know they are now they're pushing away isis from I iraq so you can do that and stay at the back somehow so okay then so i went there I was actually first few days I was working really like very far from the front lines and uh, but there was this one correspondent um yeah let me not speak names and all of that stuff sure. I mean that it's not going to help any there's not going to help but it's um there was this one guy who was like known for going way too far not really counting you know not really uh like the story was the most important no and I said, like, hell yeah, okay, I'm, I'm here, why not? I can do that. And they just really didn't believe that I can do that, all of that. I was like, okay, let me go. But then we had a different team. Now you've got the team. Our team was, everyone was willing to go this extra mile, yeah? including my high-risk person, yeah? Because sometimes you end up with someone who just tells you, okay, this is dangerous. Basically, the thing is, is it worth putting everyone in danger, getting killed, for the possible story you can get if it's not worth it if you're not gonna get too much if you're not first or any other channels already cover it because it's probably you can what you see usually on tv is this okay even as you described one camera one correspondent with a helmet and the flag jacket you know explaining you there was explosion here blah 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 but what you don't know that behind me and four different angles are different for different correspondents doing the same thing you know there's sometimes it's too many of us in one place and especially if the situation is when you get this uh kind of security with the army then that you're not taking one tv that you're taking different channels with you so i look at those things in a different way than probably the average person would watch i mean would look at it if you've got a bit of experience with it and you are in those difficult places, dangerous places, you can't really get shocked that easily. You can't get, you know, that you deal sometimes with, with really 
really sad moments and if you just allow it all to go inside and affect you you're just gonna go crazy pretty soon and this is what usually happens with people you that we all get the post-traumatic stress disorder so-called ptsd it, it might happen to me i might it might not but the way of dealing with it is kind of separating or just putting it all in some really really awful dark humor yeah which you wouldn't disclose to anyone unless you are there on the ground with those people because this is the way how you can cope with it so i just yeah so i so i deal with it like that but yeah it's and then i just look at it that we are just all those bloody tourists no going there with the army filming this and that it just basically looks like a tour sometimes it is even cold and the journalistic tour and they take you there they're gonna a lot of them is just gonna this is the time to show off so the, so this army is just showing off with firing those missiles somewhere you don't even know when it's gonna land a lot of those when as soon as i know they behave like this i just say no there's no way filming that you know that you've got you've got your own call you can tell them i'm not filming that they are doing it for show and i'm not doing i'm not filming this for show yeah so i don't like those journalistic tours but that's why you know with this guy when we went, he was, yeah, he wanted to have exclusive access. So he managed somehow to convince the, uh, I think it was a colonel or anyway, someone very army, uh, very, <laughs> very high in the army. And he managed to convince us to go to be embedded with them. And, they were, and these are only us and I think one other channel in the other car. And yeah, and then I knew we we're just gonna get exclusive access. But then we knew it's it's it is way too far. No, anything can happen anytime. And when you embed it, basically, it looks like. Just to tell you, the first day I went with those guys, we went to the front line. We were already shot at during the live even. I was just about to hit the record button and transfer it to the to London when they started to fire. So we all needed to went on the ground and you know get out of the situation. But but I just discovered I mean I just knew I'm just I'm just I, I just don't really get any scared then. I mean I was just lying there checking checking the checking the camera, checking the settings. Like, okay, let me get those shots on the right mic, on the correct mic, channel two, let's get it here. Okay, let me put the check the iris. And then and then I only looked back to my Harris guy who was lying on the ground in the mud and, and then I just simply asked him, okay, so what the fuck that we're doing now? I said, okay, now just wait and then we're gonna run here, then there. But I always try to cooperate with them because the works, the words for those Harris persons high risk um, advisors is when they are not being listened to no they are there for our safety so i try to keep them my best mates no we need to you know when the when the shit hits the the ceiling then it's uh, the fun i need to rely on them yeah because i'm not that experienced in the warfare so I just need to stay calm and I say, okay, let me go and film this or no, or can I go here now or can I do that? And then, so at least they know. And then the second day we got embedded. Now suddenly I'm just filming something and then my correspondent comes to me, okay, let's go here very quickly, quickly. And then I didn't even, I just grabbed my backpack from our car, 
no, which was the armored car, yes, so it's like much more heavy with thick glass and stuff, but it's not gonna sustain any any artillery attack anyway, but it helps you somehow. But then I just grabbed that and we needed to go to one of those army Humvees, you know, these hammers. And I just jumped in somehow. I didn't even know how to get to this car, you know, because it's not like you just open the door and get in. There's like plenty of bullets here and there, you know, machine guns. It's just like, so I basically just got in somehow. They locked the door and they speed off, you know, and that's it. And then I'm suddenly in the situation. I don't even know what's going on. Yeah, And then, then it comes with experience. I wasn't that experienced then. Maybe that's why I didn't feel any any fear, you know. And and we stayed with those guys for a few days. I was basically just, you know, they would get into the city in, in convoys, you know. In front of us were, was one tank. They had those, they had the bulldozers, you know, because they needed to move the debris in the city, especially they would need to shove stuff from one street to another street. And there is a special technique in when you when you fight in the city. It's a, it's a long topic, but I was just sitting there filming, you know, being able to just sit in one place with three other guys and with I mean with the driver, with the gunner, you know, the guy who was shooting all the time from this car, and my correspondent. And they are all, you know, they're all the Middle Eastern proper guys who are just smoke all the time, no? One cigarette after another, and I'm not a smoker. I don't, whenever I go to the clubs in the countries where it's allowed to smoke, and then whenever I wake up the next day, it's just like, no, this all goes to laundry, no? But then I need to stay with them, constantly chain smoking, and you can't open any window because in case there is a blast, it's gonna go right into the car, yeah? So you need to keep everything sealed, you know, in a very, very hot environment, a lot of smoke that I couldn't even see sometimes in front of me, yeah? So the situation like that, but I kind of got used to it. And then we had one car bomb attack on our place, which was quite lucky because we were actually filming a bit further, like one or two blocks away. So it didn't reach us. No one died there. But then, you know, those guys got really... Yeah, that's this whole situation. No? They got really uh, gas up, no? Gassed up. They just got really... They feel like heroes because there are those cameras with them. And now they are winning, no? Because they were clearly winning. The whole ISIS was, was moving back yeah, every single day. So they just got really, really confident. They went into the, the, we went too quick. I think, I mean, I'm not an expert, but we went really quick into the city. One, two, three, four blocks in without even securing anything at, at the back. And and we started to film like it was nothing there. And, and like from time to time, someone would try to hit us with the RPG, you know, so we managed to, I mean, that's a different, that's a different podcast, what, what really happened there. But basically, in short, when we were about to come back, it was already too late. I knew it's going to get dark and they got lost. And it's never good when you get lost in the city, which is occupied by other forces. And the problem was that that was already then, I think it was 2016, ISIS was using a lot of drones. No, That's a, a other thing that me, media and I'm part to blame it. We just, we like to picture, you know, the enemy 
in a way that they never have faith and they just basically just fighters there, no? So we always picture them with those masks in beheading situations and stuff like that. But, you know, they are pretty clever bunch of guys, no? They are just really e evil. So they, they had it worked out pretty well, how to use drones and all of that. So they had this whole network of suicide car bombers, you know, the guys who would be hidden in certain buildings. When you go to the city, the city looks empty. You just think it only consists of empty houses, maybe some families who were really afraid to escape. And the guys were just waiting until we approach, yeah? And they were watching us from various different drones. And when they seen that we lost, we got lost, so we stopped somewhere, we needed to go and regroup. And we needed to leave the vehicles. Someone just gave, well, okay, gave the, gave the signal, okay, the guys are here at this corner and you go there, yeah? And they called the particular guy hiding in the, in the car, yeah? And he just jumps into the car, boom, drives to us and and detonates himself no that what happened to us and then yeah the few guys died next to uh, next to me it was yeah the kind of situation which is i mean i've i've spoken a lot about it i don't think it really affects me at all we managed to survive then we needed to hide in another building until I mean, that got dark then, I didn't have a, f a phone reception. Uh, I had only, I think, half of my battery on the camera left and I didn't know what's gonna happen further, so I put it away. And that, and that's the moment when it hit me, what actually has happened, no? Because that's kind of, whenever I filmed those difficult situations and it, and quite a lot of cameramen or photo or camera women or, or photojournalists can tell you if you're actually working on something, you are behind it, you know, camera or whatever. It's just, you are not there. You just think you are not there. You're just filming it. But then the moment when you need to put it away and you and your own, fa your own eyes face it all and you know how shitty the situation is, then it got me, no? I got like, I didn't believe we we're gonna get out. I couldn't call my parents because there was no phone reception. I was just sitting there waiting until I see snipers gonna find out which house we we got into and they at night they're just gonna come and you know they're gonna finish the job so we were just waiting luckily those guys managed somehow to communicate with the main base and they managed to rescue us in a very frantic situation in the middle of the night where I didn't even know which car I'm getting into but they managed to get us out when we came back to the compound, they already thought they were already doing the reports about the BBC getting killed, the BBC crew getting killed. So they were, you know, partly probably happy, partly not. Wow. <laughs> the story was like that. And then, uh, yeah, it's not the situations like, yeah, that was the, cl uh, uh, I've, I haven't mentioned, I've not, I filmed it all. Yeah, the moment when the car bomb approaches, I, I couldn't hear it. They were all shouting car bomb, car bomb. And I wasn't experienced. The other guys went straight on the ground. We were in the garden. And and I kind of went on the ground, but obviously my first thought was, okay, let me film it, what's gonna happen. So I went on the ground, I hid my face behind the camera. And then when the blast happened, so all this blast, filled my frame and that was I think the closest BBC managed to film the explosion ever 
and I managed to survive, you know, luckily. The guys were outside of this garden, they didn't. So then when we needed to leave, I needed to, yeah, that's quite graphic. I don't need to, I mean, I could no problem with telling that I'm walking between the bodies or like dismantled bodies. But yeah, then when I went back to to London, you know, it was just, I couldn't, I, I think this is what happens when you've got the, the real problem with those, uh, those, experiences is you normally need to share it with someone no and then who do i share it with because if i go to my close friends they're gonna be either petrified or they're gonna try to change the topic and i obviously i don't blame them because what would you do in the situation like that but it's there's no point because i'm not gonna vent it because they don't understand so i could speak only to my cameraman friend or i was offered the psychological you know aid and all of that as soon as bbc found out about it they wanted to fly me back and stuff but uh yeah i can't i could speak only with my cameramen or camera women people who went through stuff like that because yeah. then i can just say one sentence and they and i can see in their eyes they know it what's going on but the problem was the real problem i started the moment when i st stopped talking about it was when I was going, let's say, to the pub or to the club, you know, then I started to meet my friends and they were all like very jolly and, you know, and someone would just get our, as a pint, you know, and I'm, and I'm there sitting and there's loud music and there are girls, da, 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 and then this guy says, oh, Marek, tell us how it was in Mosul. It's like, what the fuck? how do you, how do you expect <laughs> me to, you know, the change the whole mood? Yeah. Yeah. No, but there is mm. not even that I need, to, you know, and you probably now uh, experience, I need time to get into it. It's mm. not like, oh, listen, I've just got blown up here. Boom, boom, boom. It's just like, uh, and then you try to say it. And then they suddenly, you know, then the third late friend comes in and it's like, oh, hello, Marek. I was like, and then all this situation goes out of the window. I get really, you know, upset because I'm just trying to explain them. But it's not like that. It's not, you know, talking the, the, what kind of movie you've seen last week in the cinema. No? So I stopped talking about it. And that was the moment I just said, no, 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 I can't stop talking about it because then it all sits in me, no? So I needed to vent it here and there. And then I gave the long interview to Polish newspapers. So at least, you know, I said it once in full every moment. No, it lasted a lot. And uh, yeah, and then I just sent the report. No, I sent the report. I don't need to talk about it. And it's all there now as well. But uh, it's, yeah, situations like that. Then number of other, I was... I was almost hit by a sniper, kidnapped in Mexico as well. I mean, they basically, I'm six foot five. They called me the sniper's dream. So this is the thing, you know, this is the kind of dark humor you, you, you've got sure. in those places. Yeah. But you need to balance it. There's the whole, the moral thing. Why would you do it? Some people f think that you're a hero. Some people think you're an idiot. You know, you've got your parents who obviously worry about you. You've got girlfriends who worry about you. You've got close people, you know, you've got, you've got your brother who behaves. He doesn't care, but I'm sure he worries you now as well. So it's, you need to balance that and, uh, yeah, long topic now. But I wouldn't, I would, I'm just, I, I just keep doing it, which is a bit of adrenaline, but also, 
I think there's something when we co yeah coming back to our very one of our first thoughts. I think I was just born too lucky. No? I was born in a really good family in a in a quite good part of the world. I've had almost everything I wanted. Uh, I achieved quite a lot here in London by myself, but it comes from certain things I was given when I was a kid. And I, ju I just can't carry on living like that. No, I just need to somehow there's this thing. I need to find a balance. I need to get somewhere where where I'm gonna scared, where I'm gonna, you know, something might happen to me. But at least I can give a bit of, I can experience a bit of those. You know, there's nothing obviously because in the end of the day I'm coming back to the hotel, usually. But at least I'm just trying to share it somehow, give the hope to those people. You know, speaking in the in the difficult places, not even filming, just like telling them or just coming them and coming to them and telling them that okay I'm I'm gonna be here with you I'm gonna listen to what you're gonna to say you know that just helps those people a lot it's even now when I was coming back from Armenia you know I was now it depends because obviously you've got Armenian country I mean Armenian side Azeri side I'm gonna hopefully you know people gonna gonna understand that they're always different views of every conflict but I was on Armenian side and when I was with my camera coming back from Yerevan there were people in the queue at the airport coming to me and they would thank me for covering the war no and this, and that I'm you know that I'm sacrificing my safety my time and I'm going there and trying to help them and that's something which you can't get much in any other job no it's basically in a normal situation just queuing somewhere and you've got this person really coming and honestly telling you i'm really uh, thankful for you uh, for for what you're doing so i need i think i need those moments no a bit yeah i just i just need to that's why i'm probably fun of just getting into trouble because i haven't had that much trouble childhood no I don't know. Like I'm trying to explain it like that a bit. Yeah, I understand. I understand. You know, kind of unite also lots of uh, knowledge, like you had about you know discovering people. So you kind of tr need to, to try to explain for yourself, you know. But I don't think you need an explanation. I think you know. I I think that's what you feel you need to do and that's what you feel right to do uh, and you know your family your friends i understand you you know and uh, you know i have other friends they work with for charities or you know they could be doctors they they work in, in the front line it's the same thing you know why do you need to do that but it's 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 very rewarding you know you you, you find the meaning in your life simply like that yeah, I, I can't say that there's been many of reports which I think they change anything because certainly that explosion didn't change anything in anyone's life apart from taking life of some people who were with us. But luckily it wasn't really because of us. I just hope. But it's... Uh, whatever goes on there, it probably changes. Yeah, I had that story when we were looking for some orphans 
I mean the f families of the orf orphans and some other conflict country. In, uh, that was in Libya actually. There were the kids of ISIS, or half ISIS and half someone else, and those kids were abandoned. And then we managed to find some families, and that was yeah, that would change. But then that would change some, you know, something based. On, I mean your your work. Your your no, your actually work would change, but I also I think it I just make much more change of being there, you know, by being there and like, experiencing it. And I've also got this thing that when someone tells me, oh, like in this country people do this, or like in this conflict people do that, and you know, and I just need to go there and see it myself. Yeah, I don't like to rely, you know. Obviously, you can now you've got Twitter, you can always change different check different versions of the story. Yeah. But it's nothing like being there, mm -hmm. no? Mm -hmm. But also, it's not just as a fake, you know, it's I mean, as a fun thing, whatever you post online, ob obviously people normally wouldn't believe in everything. And and there were a lot of people who wouldn't believe in ISIS and stuff like that, you know? And I just, and now when I read comments, at least I can confirm, man, I've seen them because there was also the other day when they captured a few and I, I, I was being shot at by, you know, this is not all fake, this is there, it's been there. But also, you know, when we posted that explosion on YouTube and someone just commented, come on guys, it's obvious that it's fake because in the minute here and there, this overlaps <laughs> with it, so it's obviously it was edited, no? And I'm just, you know, you, you just sit there and just like, you know, at least, at least I know the truth, no? So that's like this different yeah. aspect of it. All right, Mark. I think I think uh, we've been chatting a lot. So uh, just yeah, it's a couple two hours, forty minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just uh, a, a couple of quick questions, uh, just uh, to wrap it up. <coughs> Sorry, and just a couple of things. Uh, so you're you're in quarantine now. So how how does your job have changed with the pandemic? Well, I'm in quarantine now because I arrived from Armenia. This is the country which is not on the corridor lift, but at least, um, yeah. So I'm. I mean, the service which sent me there, they knew I would need to quarantine. So that I mean, they're basically paying me for quarantining after the job I've done for them. But in general, uh, you mean the COVID? Yeah, in terms of COVID times. Yeah, it changed in the way that I'm not traveling that often anymore. Every travel needs to be justified. You know, it's that you always need to think, is it like worth sending anyone there, putting people in danger if you can get it as we do it now, no, on Skype. Uh, even though obviously it's not going to look that nice and glamorous, but you know, at least it's safe. So that thing changed. There's a lot of Zoom interviews and stuff, it's obviously camera people work less unless they work more in certain more complicated tasks no? because now filming an interview even if you manage to film it with someone who agrees and everything is safe covid safe you respect all the or the all the guidelines and suggestions and everything but then it just actually makes you work much harder than you would normally do this interview so yeah, technically wise, it's obviously you develop the new way of filming, new skills. Yeah, the stuff which I miss is just those travels, no? Because I don't do, I don't do, I don't, 
I'm a cameraman, but I don't, I'm not like this cameraman geek, no? I used to be, but the older I become, I just, I, I just really don't care what camera is it. I really don't care what codec is it. I just want to get the story. I just want to get somewhere where I can go and speak to people and film. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting excited. I mean, I'm getting kind of excited with every new camera. But I, w I work with different equipment. I I've got one camera assigned, which is very old PMW 500, but, it's, but I hardly ever use it. I just always hire different stuff depending on the job. So I miss that, yeah? I miss this, like the whole thing of packing, you know? Packing is exciting for me somehow, you know? Getting the stuff, you know, how you can, all this, all that organizing stuff, you know? That's what I really like. Traveling as well, because you always can speak with people, you know? And yeah, I don't get that. So sometimes I work from the office, but it's also not that safe to come to the office. Obviously I've got the, my equipment there. But it's only if I really need to go there, then now with the second lockdown, you can't really and you really don't want to go and speak to anyone and putting anyone in danger. So it's, mm, yeah, it's getting tough. I, I, I need to have plan B as always, you know, when you come from the freelance background, you always need to have plan B for everything. You never know what's going to happen. Being a cam, if anyone wants to become a cameraman after that podcast, yeah, think twice because now everyone can be a camera person. No, you don't need to be. It's good to be well skilled if you work on the on the film set, but uh, in news, yeah, it's getting less and less. No, less and less what? Less and less need. I mean, pe pe people don't need highly skilled cameramen always. No. It's easier if you send a correspondent, one person who can get it all on the phone in the fairly good quality. It's obviously it's not going to be the piece of art, but it's news. It doesn't need to have a piece, you know, it doesn't need to be arty always. But at least they get the story as opposed to sending for a lot of money, for public money, sending big crews. And then even sometimes not getting the story because it's too many of you. Yeah. So I see, yeah, it's more in fiction In fiction camera skills are always needed. No, although that changes as well. No, so it's not the, I think we are one of the, I mean, that this is just my view, but we might be one of the last generations where actually camera skill is more valued. No. Yeah, depends we, what job. Yeah, yeah, but I think that we still kind of understand how camera work. Whenever you've got these new cameras coming with different sensors, different lenses, different you know focal lengths and stuff, we understand probably still the physics. Yeah, even though I I definitely understand it much less than you do because I've never really worked on film tap uh, on film stock. No, so I don't even. So I'm still this newest the the newer generation. But now the anyone now you know it's not always that needed to understand. It just as soon as you get the effect, especially for news, you get the effects, you know. And yeah. and and to wrap it up, um, how do you see your future? Do you have an idea? Yeah, I've um, I like to float sometimes so I just see what's gonna happen now luckily I'm one of those very very lucky I'm still you know being paid I've got a job 
I need to see where it all goes, but I still wanna, yeah, I still wanna travel. I still wanna get myself in tr in trouble. Um, I don't know yet if it's for one company or maybe I will come back freelance because then you can do more. Uh, but I might come back to fiction, no? When I came here and I was working on film sets, I was like, you know, that was the time when I met you as well. I was just like, okay, it's all great. You've got great material for your showreel. But Jesus, it's just this month of meeting the same people, you know, negotiating those, you know, kit list and location. And then the day before everything changes anyway. It's a lot of, you know, like the moment you are on the set is fantastic. But I couldn't bear those coffees, you know, later editing when you don't, you know, sometimes you don't have influence on it. And then I just thought that the fiction is just, you know, why would I waste time for fiction if I can just get to the real truth and doing it there. But now, the more I do documentary stuff or new stuff, the more I appreciate fiction, no? Because I've just like, it's been already said, no? By William Faulkner, I think, the, the, the American writer, that it's sometimes you can say more by fiction than the truth. I mean, what I mean by that is like, if I want to go and document something in certain country, first of all, it's very difficult for me to get there. Even if I get there, I risk my own life or my team. I risk the life of my contributors, even though if I don't disclose their faces or, you know, or their voices or whatever, it is it loses it's not that shock it's not people i don't think people especially nowadays they're not gonna get it no they're not gonna they're just gonna say okay yeah just a different person suffering in different country but when you actually put it in fiction and it's based on true events but you can do all sorts of things now you've got all range of tools with faces emotions but obviously everything has changed but it's a fiction story about the true event. It's I think it's even more powerful sometimes, no? Yeah, I mean. sometimes like it's probably the difference again, like when I teach kids as well between TV and cinema, is that when you tell a story for cinema, you should tell a story about some feelings. So what you can't easily tell uh, probably TV news and you know sometimes a bit of documentary maybe but it, it's about the feeling so when you focus on a, on a film they kind of you try to pass this feeling to your audience is the story is a bit less important so that that's probably yeah. you know what you can how do you feel you know in in being a cameraman in the front line uh, you can't really know because, as you see, there is other four reporters around me. You know, there is yeah. this this pressure before coming there and afterwards, and actually being there is nothing compared. You know, so how how do you feel? So, yeah, you can do in yeah, fiction. Yeah, I just, I just, and also nowadays, like it's it's so easy to get the local material. Everyone has got the phone now, so you're gonna get the source called the user-generated content, how we call it in media basically get someone else to film it or maybe they have already filmed it and you just use it and it's more powerful than sending you all the way there and trying to get something even though you don't even know where you are you know so yeah 
And also the older you become, the maybe the slower, maybe maybe you appreciate stuff more, you appreciate more time to create a better better visual. But but yeah, but I still think I still behave, I feel like a teenager, so it's not gonna be anytime soon. <laughs> cool man. <coughs> Sorry. Thanks, thanks man. Thanks. Thank for you, sharing your, your stories and uh, good luck with your work. Um, yeah, and, and I'm sorry that it yeah. sometimes took so long to arrive to the point, but that's the just the one last thing. Please yeah, go ahead. Allow me to squeeze that because it's it, it, my normally when I travel, my life is so intense that I travel from one travel to another. I don't have time to share anything with anyone because I've already got different projects to think of and I just realized I forget about them. So it's very difficult sometimes for me to explain something because like random thoughts chop in, which I didn't know I even have in my head. And also, and that's why I started to write a diary because that's just the, like the moment you actually put those thoughts on a paper, this is when you actually, you <coughs> register it because before, you just see them, but they just go through your brain, like, you know, like the wind. So, yeah, sorry for that. But th but th but then I think every time I've got the possibility about talking about it, it stays more. So, yeah. Yeah, the same with I'm, me. I'm like going to shut up now. When I, when I was traveling, it was the only time actually I was taking keeping a di diary. It was, yeah. it just yeah. The third day you remember was the first day was about. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> really exactly. try to remember the day before. Cool, man. Thanks. Thanks, man. And it was great chat. And thanks for your experiences to share with us. Um, to know more about, you know, Mark's work, uh, you can check out the link in the episode description. And don't forget to find the subscribe to Carpe Diem on your favorite app or in the social media. You can find the links at our website, carpediem.podbean.com. Reviews and comments are always very welcome. I hope you enjoy our chat today and until the next one, ciao.